You're listening to The Dry by Jane Harper. Read for you by Stephen Shanahan. Chapter 35 Falk clattered into the station, panting. He had hung up the phone and run all the way from the pub. It was a smoke screen. Rako looked up from his desk. His eyes were bloodshot and he still had sleep in the corner of one. What was? The whole thing, mate. It was never about Luke. Great, Luke muttered as he drove closer, his heart sinking as he was able to make out who was waving. For a moment he wondered if he could keep going, but it was a scorching day. It had to have touched 40 earlier, he reckoned. He hesitated a moment longer then touched the brake and brought the ute to a stop. He wound down the window and leaned out. Fork opened the Hadler's file with shaking fingers, both excited and frustrated with himself. We'd been tying ourselves in knots trying to find connections to Luke, what he was hiding, who wanted him dead, and what have we ended up with? Nothing. Well, nothing substantial. Lots of minor motives, but not enough. And you were right. Was I? I did have tunnel vision, but we both did. We'd been back on the wrong horse the whole time. Looks like you got some trouble here. Luke leaned out. He nodded at the object lying at the person's feet. Thanks, I think so. Have you got any tools on you? Luke killed the engine and climbed out. He crouched down to look more closely. What's gone wrong? They were the last words Luke Hadler spoke, as a heavy weight smashed into the back of his skull. There was a wet thud and a sudden stunned silence as all around the birds in their trees were shocked mute. Breathing raggedly as he towered over Luke Hadler's slumped form, Scott Whitlam looked down at what he had done. Fork rummaged through the file and pulled out a photocopy of Karen Hadler's library receipt. The word Grant stood out above Fork's own phone number. He pushed the page across Rako's desk and stabbed it with a finger. Grant, for God's sake, it's not a bloody name. Karen shut the door to the principal's office behind her, muffling the everyday sounds of the Wednesday afternoon bustle. She was wearing a red and white apple print dress and she looked worried. She chose the seat closest to Scott Whitlam's desk and sat straight-backed with her feet neatly crossed at the ankles. Scott, she began, I wasn't sure about coming to speak to you about this, but there is a problem and I can't turn a blind eye to it. She leaned in, cautious, embarrassed Stephen, and handed over a piece of paper. On the letterhead, the Crossley Educational Trust logo stood out against the white background. Karen peered up from under her blonde fringe, her eyes looking for one thing, reassurance. Somewhere in the deepest fight-or-flight part of Scott Whitlam's brain, a hidden door cracked open and offered the briefest glimpse of just how far he was prepared to go to stop her. Grant, Fork said, pointing at the diary, also known as a bursary, a fund, a windfall, a financial gift, like the kind Kiwara Primary applied for from the Crossley Educational Trust last year. And their claim was rejected, except, guess what? Rako blinked in disbelief. You're kidding. I'm not. I was on the phone this morning to the head of the trust and Kiwara Primary was successfully awarded a financial grant of $50,000 this year. 
In hindsight, Whitlam could pinpoint the singular moment when he blew it. He had picked up the page, branded with its telltale letterhead, and examined it. It was a form survey, sent automatically to successful grant recipients to gather feedback on the submissions process. It wasn't much of a smoking gun, which meant there was probably more paperwork he guessed. Other things that she'd kept back. Karen was giving him a chance to explain or confess. Whitlam could tell by the way she looked at him, with those blue eyes begging for a reasonable answer. He should have said, Yeah, strange, I'll look into it. Perhaps we've been lucky after all. Jesus, he should have thanked her. That's what he should have done. Instead, he'd panicked. He didn't take enough time to read the letter before dismissing it. It was never going to be an easy game for him to win, but it was at that moment that he lost. Snake eyes, all over Red Rover. It'll be nothing, Whitlam had said, sealing his fate with those words. A mistake, ignore it. But the mistake was his. He could tell by the way her back stiffened and she cast her eyes down, distancing herself. If she hadn't known for sure when she walked in, she knew it as she walked out. Karen Hadler's goodbye as she left was as dry as the fields. Scott Whitlam, Rako said. Shit. Shit. Does that work? Yeah, it works. He's got a gambling problem I found out last night. Falk told him what McMurdo had said. That's what tipped me off. Something McMurdo said made me realise we'd been looking in the wrong direction the whole time. So what are we talking? Stealing funds from the school for what? Bad debts? Rako said. Could well be. Whitlam turns up last year from the city. No connection to the place. Sticks around even though he clearly hates it. He told me some story about a mugging gone wrong back in Melbourne. A a stranger got stabbed. I wouldn't be surprised if there was more to that than he says. They were silent for a moment. Jesus, poor Karen, Rako said. We're idiots, Falk said. We discounted her far too quickly. Her and Billy, we thought they were collateral damage. Luke was always the main player. He always attracted the attention. Ever since we were kids, he was the perfect cover. How could anything ever be about his boring wife when it could be about Luke? Christ. Rako closed his eyes, running through the case as they knew it, shaking his head as pieces dropped into place. Karen wasn't being stalked by Grant Dow. She wasn't afraid of her husband. If anything, Luke was probably worried about what she thought she'd discovered at the school. You think she told him? I think she must have, Falk said. Why else would she have my phone number? Karen went straight from Whitlam's office to the girls' toilets. She locked herself in a cubicle and put her forehead against the door before she let the angry tears come. Right up until that meeting there had been a glimmer of hope. She'd wanted Whitlam to look at the letter and laugh. Ah, see exactly what's happened, he'd say before explaining it in a way that made perfect sense. She'd been desperate for him to say that, and he hadn't. Karen wiped her eyes with a shaky hand. What now? Part of her still couldn't quite believe Scott had stolen that money, even though she now knew it to be true. She'd known it before if she admitted it to herself. She'd gone through the account records herself. The errors that had cropped up were his, not hers. A trail of breadcrumbs exposing his deceit, his theft 
She tried the word out. It felt so wrong. Karen believed suspicion was not the same as certainty. But her husband's view of the world had always been more black and white. Babe, if you think the bastards nicked the money, then call the cops and report it. I'll report it if you don't want to, Luke had said two nights ago. Karen had been sitting up in bed, a new library book open across her lap. She wasn't getting very far with it. She watched her husband take his clothes off and throw them in a heap on a chair. He stood there naked and arched his broad back as he yawned. He flashed her a sleepy smile and she was struck by how lovely he looked in the half-light. They spoke in whispers so the sound didn't carry to the kids' rooms. No, Luke, she'd said. Don't interfere, please. I can do it myself, but I want to be sure, then I'll report it. Part of her knew she was being overcautious, but the school's principal was part of the bedrock of the community. Karen could imagine how the parents would react. Tempers were so fraught a part of her worried they might actually harm him. She couldn't let loose an accusation of that scale without solid proof. Kiwara was fragile enough as it was. This had to be done right. Then there was her job to consider. She'd lose that in a heartbeat if she was wrong. I should talk to Scott first, Karen said as her husband climbed in next to her and put a warm hand on her thigh. Give him a chance to explain. Give him a chance to hide it, more like. Karen, babe, let the cops handle it. She was silent, mutinous. Luke sighed. All right, if you won't report it, at least get some advice on getting whatever this proof is you think you need. Luke rolled over and reached out for his mobile phone. He scrolled through until he found a contact and passed the phone to Karen. Call this guy, that friend of mine is a cop. He does something with money with the feds in Melbourne. He's a good bloke, really smart, plus he kind of owes me one. You can trust him, he'll help you. Karen Hadler didn't say anything. She had told Luke she would sort it out, and she would. But it was late, and easier not to argue. She found a pen among the clutter on her bedside table and picked up the first piece of paper to hand, the library receipt she was using for a bookmark. That would do. She turned it over and wrote a single word of reminder before copying down Aaron Fork's number. Then, because her husband was still watching, she tucked it carefully into the book she was reading and placed it by the bed. So it won't get lost, she said, turning off the lamp and lying back against the pillow. Call him, Luke said as he reached out and slipped his arms around his wife in the quiet night. Aaron will know what to do. Chapter 36 Ninety minutes later, Fork and Rako watched the school from the front seat of the station's unmarked police car. They were parked up a hill on a side street, their vantage point offering a decent view of the main building and front playground. The back door of the car opened and Constable Barnes climbed inside. He'd jogged up the hill and was out of breath. He leaned through the gap between the front seats and held out his palm, proudly displaying two brand new Remington shots. Rako picked up the ammunition and inspected the make. He nodded. It was the same brand found in the bodies of Luke, Karen and Billy Hadler. Forensics could probably match it more closely, but for now, that was good enough. It was locked away in the caretaker's shed, like he said. Barnes was almost bouncing in his seat. Any trouble getting in? Forecast. Barnes tried and failed to look modest. 
I went direct to the caretaker, used the old routine inspection line. Licenses, safety bullshit. He let me straight in. Too easy. I managed to find enough wrong that he'll keep it to himself. Said I'd turn a blind eye if he got it sorted before my next visit. He'll be telling no one. Good work, said Rako. As long as he doesn't tell Whitlam for a few hours, we'll be right. Back up from Clyde's about 40 minutes away. I don't see why we don't just roll in there and lift the bastard. Barnes grumbled from the back seat. Clyde hasn't done anything to deserve the credit. Rako looked over. We'll get credit where it's due, mate. Don't worry, he said. They're not going to get much glory for securing his house and grabbing his bank statements. I wish they'd hurry up then, Barnes said. Yeah, me too, Fork said. All three turned back to stare at the building in the distance. A bell rang and the school doors opened. A gaggle of children trickled out, forming groups, running around, revelling in their temporary freedom. Behind them, Fork could make out a figure leaning against the main doorway. Hat on, coffee mug in hand, a flash of red tie visible against his shirt. Scott Whitlam. Fork felt Barnes shift behind him. Fifty grand. It's a grubby amount to kill three people over, Barnes said. It'll be less about the money than you'd think, Fork said. Gamblers like him are always chasing something else. I've seen it get pretty desperate pretty fast. I think every roll of the dice is a second chance. The question is, what was Whitlam chasing? Doesn't matter what it was. Can't justify this, Barnes said. No, but that's money for you, Fork said. It can get bloody disgusting. Whitlam stood in the school doorway, cradling his mug between his hands. The wind was up again. He felt the dust stick to the sweat on his skin. The kid shrieked and ran in the playground in front of him, and he wondered if he could start to breathe again. A couple of days and Fork would be gone, maybe sooner with any luck. He would breathe then, he decided. Not before. A few more months. Keep his head down, keep his luck up, and he could disappear to that job up north. Part of him couldn't believe he'd made it to this point. He'd nearly had a heart attack when Rako had mentioned they had security footage from the Hadler's farm. He'd had no idea the farmhouse had a camera, and he'd sat in a cold sweat between the two cops as he contemplated how near he'd come to being discovered. He had to get away from here. He would have to convince Sandra to give him one last chance, one more fresh start, and this time he would stop gambling. He promised. He had said the words to her last night, and through his tears, he'd felt that for the first time he really meant them. She had watched in silence. She'd heard those words before. Right before they'd moved to Kiwara, and at least twice before that. But this time he had to make her believe it. More than that, he told himself. He had to do it. He had to stop. Because this time there was so much more at risk than he could bear to lose. Just the thought of it made his guts churn. Sandra was so worried. And yet she had no idea of the real weight of the axe dangling over them. She thought having a bank account constantly in the red was the worst of her problems. The secret shame of having to buy the weekly groceries on credit cards. Having to keep up appearances behind a veneer of rented houses and higher purchase coffee machines. She thought the problems ran day to day, but not much further. She didn't know about the trail of debts that stretched from here to Melbourne. Or the horrors waiting for her and their daughter at the end of that trail if he didn't pay. 
Whitlam almost smiled, a wild, loopy grin at the idea of telling her the truth. The promise of the nail gun alone would be enough to send her racing up north. They had delivered the message to his house, here in Kiwara. Two thick-necked steroid junkies from Melbourne, showing up on his tidy, suburban-like doorstep in person to tell him their boss was getting twitchy. Pay. They'd brought the nail gun with them to show him. Whitlam had been paralysed with fear. Sandra and Danielle were in the house. He could hear the sounds of his wife and daughter chatting idly in the kitchen as the two men detailed in low tones what they were going to do to them if he didn't come up with the cash. It was a horrific soundtrack. The notification of the Crossley Educational Trust funding had come through two days later. The letter was addressed to Whitlam directly. It had arrived with the claim form on Karen's day off and landed on his desk unopened. He'd made the decision in less than a heartbeat. They gave away millions. 50,000 was a drop in the ocean for those rich bastards. He could earmark it for something vague and tricky to quantify. Training courses, perhaps. Support programs. That would tick their boxes. For a while. But that was all he needed. A while. Borrow it now to pay Melbourne. Repay it, well, later. Somehow. It wasn't enough to clear his debt, not by a long way but it was enough to buy him some breathing space. He hadn't let himself think about it too closely as he'd diverted the money. He'd simply swapped the school's account details for his private one, the one Sandra didn't know about. He kept the school's account name on the form. Banks used only the numbers, not the names. Whether the two corresponded was never checked, he knew. The plan had been okay, he told himself. Not great, not even good, but holding water. Then Karen Hadler had knocked on his door one afternoon holding that crossly trust form. Whitlam remembered the look in her eyes and, making a fist, he lightly, discreetly punched the wall next to him until his knuckles were raw and weeping. Whitlam watched Karen leave. As his office door clicked closed behind her, he rotated in his chair and silently vomited into the waste paper bin. He could not go to prison. He couldn't pay off what he owed in prison, and the people he owed weren't the kind to care about why. Pay, or his family paid. That was the deal, signed and sealed. He had seen the nail gun. They'd made him touch it, feel its leaden weight in his hand. Pay, or his... No, there was no alternative. He would pay. Of course he would pay. He sat alone in his office and forced himself to think. Karen knew, which meant she'd probably tell her husband if she hadn't told him already. How soon would she blow the whistle? She was a cautious woman, almost overly diligent in many ways. It slowed her down. Karen Hadler would want to be 100% certain before she committed herself to action. Luke, however, was a different story. He didn't have much time. He couldn't let this get out. He could not let this get out. There was no alternative. The end of the school day came and went, but brought with it no real answer. Whitlam waited as long as he could, then did what he always did in times of stress. He took all the cash he had, and some he didn't, and went to the pub's pokey room. It was there, cocooned in the glow of the lights and the optimistic jangling sounds, that the first stirrings of a solution came to him. 
as they so often did. Alone and tucked out of sight among the pokies, Whitlam heard Luke Hadler's voice from a table round the corner. He froze, hardly daring to breathe, as he waited for Hadler to tell Jamie Sullivan about the school money. He felt sure it was coming, but the secret remained unsaid. Instead, they bitched about rabbits, planned a shoot on Sullivan's land the following day. Times were arranged. Luke would bring his own shotgun. Interesting, Whitlam thought. Perhaps the game was not quite over. Not yet. Another hundred dollars in gold coins pushed through the machine and he had the skeleton of a plan. He ran it over and over in his head until there was some flesh on the bones. It was okay. Not perfect. Not a sure thing. But maybe 50-50. And Whitlam would take those odds any day of the week. Down in the playground, Whitlam watched as a group of tiny children hurtled past him, his own daughter in the mix. For a second he thought he saw Billy Hadler in the crowd, not for the first time. Whitlam's head jerked involuntarily, a sort of spasm from the neck. He still felt sick when he thought about the boy, for what it was worth. Billy was never supposed to be there. Whitlam's scraped fist clenched around the coffee cup as he made his way back to his office. The boy was supposed to be out of the house. It was all arranged. He'd made sure. He'd deliberately dug out that badminton set. After that, it had needed only a subtle suggestion from him for Sandra to get on the phone and organise that last-minute playdate with Billy. If the boy's stupid mother hadn't cancelled, stuffed up the plan, then Billy wouldn't have been caught up in it. She only had herself to blame. Whitlam himself had tried to save that kid. No one could say any different. He took a swig of coffee and winced as the liquid burned his mouth. He felt it trickle down his gullet, turning his insides sour. Guts writhing, Whitlam had left the pub and passed a sleepless night, picking holes in his plan. The next day he sat in his office in a blank-eyed stupor, waiting for the inevitable knock on the door. Karen would have spoken up. Surely. Someone would come. He just didn't know who it would be. The police the school board chairman, Karen herself again, perhaps. He both feared and longed for that knock. A knock meant Karen had told. It meant it was too late and he wouldn't have to do what he was planning. He didn't need to ask himself if he could go through with it. He knew he could. He'd proved it with the guy in the Footscray Alley. That was a guy who should have known better. He was supposed to be a professional. Whitlam had come across him once before, then, the man had cornered him in a car park, relieved him of his wallet and delivered his message via a sharp blow to the kidneys. It was supposed to play out the same in Footscray, Whitlam guessed. But then the man had grown angry, started waving the knife around and demanding more than they'd agreed. Things got messy fast. The guy had been sloppy and almost certainly under the influence of something. He'd heard the word teacher and underestimated Whitlam's athleticism. A poorly timed lunge was countered with a lucky rugby tackle, and they hit the concrete with a crack. The blade had flashed orange in the streetlight, and Whitlam felt the point slice across his belly, leaving a warm red line. Adrenaline and fear rushed through him as he grabbed the man's knife hand. He held and twisted it, using his own weight to force it back towards his attacker's torso. The man wouldn't drop the knife. 
He was still holding it as it slipped into his own body. He grunted wetly into Whitlam's face as the teacher pinned him down, feeling the slowing rhythm of the blood pumping out onto the road. He had waited until the man had stopped breathing, then waited a full minute more. Whitlam had had tears in his eyes. His body was trembling and he was terrified he might pass out. But somewhere, buried many layers down, was a pinpoint of calm. He'd been driven into a corner and he'd acted. He'd done what was needed. Whitlam, so familiar with the sick, free-falling sensation every time he reached for his wallet, had, for once, been in control. With shaking fingers, he'd examined his own torso. The cut was superficial. It looked far worse than it was. He bent over his attacker and dutifully performed two rounds of CPR, making sure his fingerprints smeared in blood reflected his civic actions. He found a house in a neighbouring street with its lights on and let forth the emotion he'd been holding back as he asked them to report a mugging. The attackers had fled, but quick, please, someone was badly injured. Whenever Whitlam now thought about the incident, which was more often than he expected, he knew it had been an act of self-defence. This new threat may involve an office rather than an alleyway, paper instead of a knife, but at its heart he felt it was not so different. The guy in the lane? Karen on the other side of the desk, forcing his hand, compelling him to act. It came down to them or him and Whitlam chose himself. The end of the school day came and went. The classrooms and playground cleared. No one came knocking on the office door. She hadn't reported it yet. He could still salvage this. It was now or it was never. He looked at the clock. It was now. Chapter 37 how did Whitlam get to the Hadler's farm? Barnes asked, leaning forward between the front seats. We turned our eyes square watching that school CCTV footage and I thought his car didn't move from the school parking lot the whole afternoon. Falk found the photos of Luke's body sprawled in his ute's cargo tray. He pulled up the close-cropped shot of the four horizontal streaks on the tray's interior. He passed it to Barnes, along with his phone showing the photos he'd taken of his own car boot the night before. On the boot's felt-up holstery were two long stripes. Barnes looked from one to the other. Marks are the same, he said. What are they? The ones in my boot are new, Falk said. They're tyre streaks. He rode there on his bloody bike. Whitlam didn't tell anyone in the front office he was going. He slipped out of the fire door unseen, leaving his jacket on his chair and his computer switched on the universal symbol for on-the-premises back in a tick. He nipped out to the sheds, avoiding the limited range of the two cameras. Thank God for lack of funding, he caught himself thinking, then almost laughed at the irony. Within minutes, Whitlam had unlocked the ammunition store and pocketed a handful of shots. The school had a single shotgun for rabbit control, which he placed in a sports bag and slung over his shoulder. He would only use that as a last resort. Luke Hadler would have his own gun, Whitlam begged silently. He'd been shooting with Sullivan. But ammunition? No idea. Whitlam jogged to the bike sheds. 
He'd driven in early that morning and parked in a quiet street near the school. Pulling his bike from the boot, he'd cycled the short rest of the journey. He'd chained his bike up where he knew it would soon be surrounded by others, hidden in plain sight. Then he'd walked back to his car and driven it into the school car park, choosing a prime spot well within the camera's range. Now he unlocked his waiting bike and moments later was cycling along deserted country roads towards the Hadless property. It wasn't far and he made good time. He stopped a kilometre from the farm and picked an overgrown spot by the side of the road. He pushed his way into the bushes and waited, whispering a silent, feverish prayer that he'd timed it right. After 25 minutes he was sweating, convinced he'd missed his chance. Not a single vehicle had come along. Eight more minutes ticked by. Nine. Then, just as Whitlam was sliding his eyes sideways towards the end of the shotgun and wondering if there wasn't in fact another way out for him, he heard it. A ute engine rumbled in the distance. Whitlam peered out. It was the one he needed. He felt lightheaded as he sent up a silent prayer of thanks. He stepped out onto the side of the road, dumping his bike at his feet. He stood next to it and put out his arms, waving wide and wretchedly like the drowning man that he was. It looked for a terrible moment like the ute wasn't going to stop. Then, as it drew closer, it slowed, pulling to a halt where he stood. The driver's window rolled down. Looks like you got some trouble here. Luke Hadler leaned out. Whitlam's elbow jarred painfully as he brought the sock packed with stones crashing down on the back of Luke's skull. It connected with the top of his neck with a gritty crunch and Luke crumpled face first into the dirt and settled with a dead weight. Whitlam pulled on rubber gloves pocketed from the school science lab and opened the ute's cargo tray. With the speed of an athlete, he shoved his hands under Luke's armpits and hauled him clumsily into the back. He listened. Luke's breathing was shallow and ragged. Whitlam raised the sock and brought it crashing down twice more. Felt the skull crunch. There was blood now. Whitlam ignored it. He covered Luke loosely with a tarpaulin he found in the tray and flung his bike on top. The dirt-caked wheels came to rest against the side panel. Luke's shotgun was in the passenger seat. Whitlam felt dizzy with the relief and leaned his forehead against the steering wheel for a full minute while the sensation passed. The weapon was unloaded. Fine. Whitlam took the school's Remington ammunition from his pockets and loaded Luke's gun. The die was cast. Looks like you got some trouble here. Luke Hadler leaned out. Whitlam's elbow jarred painfully as he brought the sock packed with stones crashing down on the back of Luke's skull. It connected with the top of his neck with a gritty crunch and Luke crumpled face first into the dirt and settled with a dead weight. Whitlam pulled on rubber gloves pocketed from the school science lab and opened the ute's cargo tray. With the speed of an athlete he shoved his hands under Luke's armpits and hauled him clumsily into the back. He listened. Luke's breathing was shallow and ragged. Whitlam raised the sock and brought it crashing down twice more. Felt the skull crunch. There was blood now. Whitlam ignored it. 
He covered Luke loosely with a tarpaulin he found in the tray and flung his bike on top. The dirt-caked wheels came to rest against the side panel. Luke's shotgun was in the passenger seat. Whitlam felt dizzy with the relief and leaned his forehead against the steering wheel for a full minute while the sensation passed. The weapon was unloaded. Fine. Whitlam took the school's Remington ammunition from his pockets and loaded Luke's gun. The die was cast. Chapter 38 Morning break time had been over for 30 minutes and all was still. The playground in the distance was deserted and Falk was stifling a yawn when his mobile rang. Rako and Barnes jumped as it trilled loudly in the silence of the car. Federal Agent Falk, a voice said as he answered. It's Peter Dunn here, cross the Educational Trust Director we spoke this morning. Yes, Falk said, sitting up a little straighter. What is it? Look, it's a bit awkward, but that claim you asked about for Kawara Primary? Yes. Falk wished the man would get to the point. I know you said it needed to be hush-hush, but I've discovered that my assistant, she's new, still trying to find her feet, it seems she passed it on to another team member who didn't quite grasp the confidential nature and... And what? And she appears to have contacted the school in question about 20 minutes ago to check... No! Falk reached over and buckled his seatbelt, frantically gesturing for Rako and Barnes to do the same. Yes, I know. I'm sorry. Who did she speak to? As it was rather a large sum, she went straight to the top, the principal, Mr Whitlam. Falk hung up the phone. School. Now. Rako slammed his foot on the accelerator. Luke's body jutted a little under the tarpaulin as Whitlam trundled along the short distance to the Hadler's farm. Whitlam dragged his eyes away from the rearview mirror and gripped the wheel tight, his hands sweating inside the plastic gloves. At the farmhouse, he pulled Luke's ute to a stop and jumped out before he had time to think what was ahead. Only at the front door did he hesitate. Whitlam didn't know the layout of the Hadler's house and grounds well at all, certainly not enough to go searching for Karen. Struck by the sudden madness of it, he saw his hand reach out and press the doorbell. He would bring her to him. The shotgun hung by his side, snug against his thigh. Karen Hadler opened the door, blinking once in recognition and surprise. She drew a breath, her tongue curling behind her teeth for the sibilant s, the hard forming in her throat. Then his name was cut short as he raised the gun in a swift movement and pulled the trigger. He closed his eyes as he did it, and when he opened them she was falling backwards, her stomach red and raw. Whitlam winced as her elbow caught the tiled floor with a loud crack, and her head snapped back. Her eyes flickered eerily, and a long, alto moan sounded from deep in her chest. Whitlam's ears were ringing, and he could hear nothing. Mummy? No. No, he could hear nothing else. Mummy! Nothing but the breath in his chest and the ringing in his ears, and definitely not Billy Hadler shrieking like a bird from the shadow of the hallway, a toy dangling from one hand and his mouth stretched wide in horror. Mummy! 
Whitlam couldn't believe it. He could not believe it. The kid was here. The kid was here. Why the hell wasn't he far away, safe on the other side of town, playing in Whitlam's own backyard? Instead he was here, and he'd seen, and now Whitlam had to make it as though he hadn't seen, and there was only one way he could think of to do that, and... Are you happy now, you nosy bitch? He screamed at Karen's body. As Billy turned and belted down the hall, too scared to cry, so making ghoulish, gasping little sighs instead. Whitlam felt as though he'd stepped out of his body. He followed and burst into the bedroom, almost unseeing as he flung open cupboard doors, ripped off the bedspread. Where was he? Where was he? He was angry, furious at what he was being made to do. A sound came from the laundry basket, and Whitlam couldn't remember pushing it aside. But he must have, because there was Billy. Billy, pressed against the wall, his face in his hands. But Whitlam remembered pulling the trigger. Yes. Later he would remember that well. There was the dreadful ringing in his head again and again. Oh dear God, please no. Something else. He thought for a hideous moment the cries were coming from Billy, who was missing half his head and chest. He wondered if he was making them himself, but when he put his hand to his mouth, it was closed. He followed the noise almost curiously across the hall. The child was in the nursery, standing in her cot, bawling. Whitlam stood in the doorway and thought he might vomit. He positioned the barrel of the gun towards his own chin and held it there, feeling the heat radiate off the metal until the urge passed. Slowly he turned the weapon around. It wobbled as he trained it on the baby's yellow jumpsuit. He took a breath. The chaos in his head was deafening, but amid the noise was a single urgent note of reason. Look. He made himself pause. He blinked once. Look at her age and listen. She's crying, crying, not talking. No words. She couldn't speak. She couldn't tell. It scared him that in that instant he was still tempted. Bang, he whispered to himself. He heard a scary laugh, but when he looked there was no one else around. Whitlam turned and ran, over Karen's body and out to Luke's ute and then behind the wheel and roaring out onto the country road. He passed no one and drove until the jitters got too strong for him to hold the wheel. He took the next turn off he saw, a pathetic track leading to a small clearing. Whitlam climbed out and dragged his bike from the ute, his teeth chattering in his skull. With shaking hands he threw back the tarpaulin obscuring four horizontal streaks left against the paintwork as the bike's wheels had shifted and moved during the journey. Whitlam steeled himself and leaned over the body. There was no movement. He peered at Luke's face, so close that he could see where the other man had cut himself shaving. He felt no whisper of air. Luke had stopped breathing. Whitlam pulled on new gloves, and a plastic rain poncho, then dragged the body to the edge of the tray. He hauled it with some trouble into a slumped seated position. Shotgun between Luke's legs, his fingertips pressed to the weapon, the barrel propped against his teeth. 
Whitlam was terrified the body would slip and crumple, and had the bizarre thought that he should have practiced this somehow. Then he closed his eyes and pulled the trigger. Luke's face disappeared, and his body fell backwards. The blow to the back of his skull was lost in the mess. It was done. Whitlam crammed his gloves, poncho and the tarpaulin into a plastic bag to burn later. Then he took three deep breaths and wheeled his bike onto the empty road. As he rode away, the blowflies were already starting to circle. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Dry wherever books or audiobooks are sold.